All right, and we are live. Welcome back to the Loopcast. Today, I'm joined by Josh and Erica. And yeah, we're rolling two days in a row here, which is a little bit of a fun twist for us. But uh, Josh stayed up way past his bedtime last night to take in all that there was to take in at the Iowa caucus. Uh, a man of, uh, of mighty knowledge when it comes to obscure election laws and fun and candidates. Uh, if you want to start on, you know, records, uh, I heard some were broken last night. Uh, what was so historic about just the Trump route that we saw last night? Yeah, I mean, you know, it was a four-way contest in Iowa. And uh, not only did Trump get 51%, I mean, that's amazing. He got a majority of the votes in a four-way race. Uh, to give perspective on it, back in 2016, there were like three front runners. Ted Cruz won. Uh, but... Trump got second place and Mark Ruby got a close third place. They're all kind of bunched together, like 27, 25, 23%. Uh, that did not happen this time at all. I mean, Trump won in a route, 51%. And the margin he won it by was greater than Bob Dole had won it back in 1986. I mean, Bob Dole was, he's from Kansas, you know, and this was like his, basically his third time running for Dole. And so it wasn't a, too much of a shock, but he won it pretty big. Uh, Trump just blew the doors open with this, the margin of victory. Um, you know, there are some people still saying, oh, well, maybe there's a chance that, you know, DeSantis could win or something like that, or maybe make it close. It wasn't close. I mean, you know, 30 point victory. And um, right before the caucus voting started, I knew, I knew it was going to be a pretty big victory when instead of saying, you know, Bob Vanderplatt's a good guy. I like him. He's a pro, he's pro life, pro family guy. He runs the family leader in, in Des Moines, Iowa. And, uh, but he was all on the, the Santos train. And he said, well, if Trump doesn't get a 50%, then maybe it's not that big of a victory. I mean, that's just trying to spin it as best you can. <laughs> right. And Trump, <laughs> like, getting, Trump gets the 50%. He gets that's 51. A 51. Yeah. So right? that was like, it. I mean, you're just so trying to manage expectations there, and uh, it didn't work. Um, Trump in a route. I mean, the best case scenario now for, uh, you know, I mean, if Trump actually kind of doesn't mind it, if both the, these other candidates stay in the race, he's just going to keep winning by large margins. Um, I don't I don't expect any major change to happen in New Hampshire. I mean, maybe Nikki Haley gets 30 percent. But I mean, at this rate, this you know, I think this race is, it's, it's, you know, we'll still play it out, but yeah. I, yeah. I, I think you get to South Carolina, which will be the third state and Trump's going to probably win in a walk. If yeah, I may, it, oh, Erica, uh, mm -hmm. just before we go into it, I think this really kind of shows the extent of the dominance. When you start looking at exit polling uh, in Iowa specifically, this is from Amanda Pres Giacomo, does a great job over the Daily Wire, but she was breaking down some of the uh, the statistics here we have, uh, he won college degree holders by double digits at 62%. I mean, these were that's actually not non college, no non college degree. So it's yeah, okay, I was gonna say double digits, digits yeah. That. Haley um, actually yeah. dominated in the uh college degree holders, right? I think which was, was expected. about it, that was, yeah, right. Um, right. But yeah, so if we just looked this over here. We have uh, without a college degree by double digits uh, at 62%. Uh, similar results with people who consider themselves conservative, 58, and rural voters, 58. Um, 
But again, white evangelical caucus goers, which we're going to get to Joy Reid's thoughts on white evangelical caucus goers. They're not very oh, positive. She's, she's delightful. <laughs> um, at 55%, oh, I mean, that's 24% for DeSantis, 13% for Nikki Haley. I mean, we're talking about, I mean, these are just, that's the Grand Canyon, basically. Of a what, can I share my favorite, my favorite statistic here? For those who value a strong leader with sufficient mental capabilities, Trump won by 28 <laughs> points. <laughs> and that's not yeah. even running against Biden. That's running against. <laughs> well, it's, you know, whatever the, the case may be. I mean, it, that just means he's winning the anti-Biden vote. Yes, People he's got the really upset by Biden. You know, it doesn't necessarily say anything about Trump's uh, Republican and primary opponents, but it's true. It's it was a cute true. nod. It was a cute nod that direction. Uh, <laughs> <Thanks>. But <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting. Like they keep talking about, well, are these indictments are they going to affect him in some of these primaries? Are people going to maybe shy away from him? Uh, clearly, uh, it's done the opposite. Uh, if anything, people are saying they feel like he's more of the answer because of this. I mean, if you look, only twenty percent said that Trump was legitimately being investigated for potential wrongdoing. 80% chalked it up to partisan attacks. I mean, stuff that we know because we're normal people living in the Midwest. But I think there's a lot of wishful thinking possibly from a lot of the media saying, oh, we're really going to get him this time. And it's like, well, you, you raided Mar-a-Lago and you didn't do anything to Biden for the documents in his garage. So uh, not super surprising, but I just think the 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 differences are really surprising. I mean, yeah, I mean, it was a route. I mean, it was a route from beginning to end. And um I, I just feel like, and, and, you know, now we can start to look at, you know, the consequences of it, but like, I, you know, is it officially over, not officially over, over, but it's going to take a miracle at this point for it not to be the Trump train moving on through the primaries. And it's, it, it's worth exploring why this vote was so dominant because this was the chance to try to get things off the, the rails a little bit. If you couldn't upset him in, in Iowa, you know, like the thought was if DeSantis, he, I mean, I think it was a smart move, actually. DeSantis like, I'll put all my eggs in this basket. And if I can, you know, come from behind with a, you know, with a victory in Iowa, just like Huckabee shocked the world, just like Santorum shocked the world. If I can do it and I have a, more resources than either of those guys had, if I could shock the world and then maybe Nikki Haley wins in New Hampshire, then all of a sudden Trump's 0 for 2, and then I go into South Carolina, and it's a battle royal, and it's a three-way race, and people realize that Nikki won't be able to compete long into the primaries because she's too moderate to win the voters. So DeSantis is thinking, that's my shot. It's a game plan that actually makes a lot of sense. I mean, the only problem with it was that most Republican voters in Iowa, and I think we'll see this repeated in other states, are like, you know what? I like Trump. He worked mm -hmm. out, so they're going to stick with him. Uh, ultimately... There, I, th I found a really good article by John Gabriel in Discourse Magazine. He actually wrote it before Iowa, but I think I, I feel like he's got the analysis here spot on. He said, ultimately, DeSantis was trying to convince these people, I know you love Trump. I know you love Trump. I know he did a lot of great things, but he's kind of unpopular. So maybe you should switch to this other brand, me. And I'm like just as conservative. I got just the popular spirit like he does, but I don't make you know, the left go crazy and I don't frighten independence because I look, I want in Florida. But ultimately what the problem was, you're basically trying to convince people who love to drink Coke, you should switch to Pepsi. It's like, I don't know. I, I'm just happy the way I'm happy with what I got. I like, I like what I got. And I think that was at least one part, port, one reason why 
DeSantis wasn't able to, to get traction here. I think another reason, though, is when, when Trump first ran in 2016, he didn't have the establishment on his side. Now, actually, he has the establishment on his side. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. OK, I'm not trying to say he's part of the D.C. swamp. I just mean that he looked at the numbers. The Trump world said we heard the rumors of this, like before the, the Iowa caucus, like, hey, you know, if you want to endorse Trump, you better get it before Iowa, because we try to do it afterwards and you're dead to me. It's not going to mean anything. We need it now. And so politicians started lining up like Mike Lee, Marco Rubio. I mean, I like those guys. And they say they realize we better just endorse now rather than, you know, being at the back of the line. So there is that part. Trump is able to put the screws on, you know, in a, in a political way. I'm not again, I'm not making that sound like it's evil. I'm, it's just the way politics is. But I do think there's one extra thing that uh, DeSantis needs to consider. Now, I mentioned this several months ago, back in the summer. I said, I love the fact that Ron DeSantis signed the heartbeat bill, but I did worry about whether or not that would cost him with independence. I think that's borne out because I think some of those independents that might have gone for DeSantis as an alternate to Trump shifted over to Haley because of that. I said at the time, I, I'm glad DeSantis still still sign that bill to protect more life. So I love it. That's I'm just trying to give people an analysis here. But I also think, I also think that Ron DeSantis, and I give credit to uh, someone online who, who made this point, uh, Chateaubriand, I don't know who that is, but he <laughs> said the donor class started to, you know, we're thinking, well, maybe we should, you know, support Ron DeSantis. He would be like just as, Good on the issues as as Trump, but he wouldn't be as bombastic and and get voters upset. Let's let's back Ron DeSantis. But then Ron DeSantis proved he was the real deal. Like he actually did take on Disney, and he actually did fight for you know um, make sure that smut books weren't in the hands of kids. So he, was, so he started fighting on these issues that you know matter to families. And I think some of those donors were like, well, I don't really care about any of this. I just want my tax cuts lower. And so. I feel like he might have jeopardized, uh, you know, getting that big money from donors. And I'm still glad that DeSantis did that. I mean, that's I'm not trying to I'm just trying to give the analysis as I see it. So I think th for those reasons and more, uh, Ron DeSantis is a great guy, great candidate. I like him a lot. Uh, ultimately, though, I think he just wasn't able to get the traction, able to convince enough voters. Hey, give me a shot. A lot of people look at him and go, yeah, dude, you're great. Maybe in four years. And it was hard yeah. for him to get over that. Yeah, how, long, how long do you think, actually, it's a question for Josh. How long do you think DeSantis holds on here? Because, again, last night was so decisive. And, you know, we have someone in the chat asking, do you think the remainder of the primary could still be a positive thing? And I've seen a lot of noise online today saying, okay, well, that was so decisive. It is time to for everyone to just cut bait, put all their everything behind defeating Joe Biden. Is it time for that yet? Or do they keep fighting? Is there still more to be said for numbers two and three, uh, Haley and DeSantis? Well, Nikki Haley thinks, hey, I got a shot at winning New Hampshire. So she's going to stay in the race. I don't care. She thinks it's a two-man race or two-person race at this she point. Indeed, she yeah. said last it night. Might be. In other words, not her. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, she'll get a, a little blip of success in New Hampshire. But no, I mean, ultimately, um, I mean, I think Vivek, if I pronounce his name correctly, Ramaswamy, I actually like him a lot, but yeah. I think he was right to see the writing on the wall. It's like, dude, you got 9%, you know, forget it. Uh, even even uh, landslide Asa Hutchinson realized, you know, it's probably time to pack it in. You got less than, you know, one half of 1%. Um, but DeSantis, I, I mean, like, sh if you were asking me, like, hey, should you 
you know, should I give it up right now? I'd be like, well, you, you know, I could have given you advice six months ago. That would have been more helpful than, than now. But, um, (laughs) (laughs) um, ultimately there's, I I don't know, like he might want to stay in a little bit longer. He's basically, if I were him, I'd stay in it and, and see if there's a chance for Trump to stumble or try to get leverage out of it. Say, Hey, I want to be your, you know, secretary of, I don't know, something being a cabinet post. I don't know something that, cause he's going to need a place to land. He's only, he's term limited out as governor. And so he'll have three more years left of being governor of Florida. And then what are you going to just wait for the, I guess, ramp up for 2028 campaign? Cause Trump won't be able to, if Trump gets elected, he obviously can't run for a third term. So I don't know. We'll have to see. There's a lot of variables here, but. Yeah. Do you buy the conspiracy theories that uh, Trump's going to make Nikki Haley his vice president? I actually don't think so. I mean, I don't I don't know where that's, you know, there, there's got to be some smoke there because I've seen that um, rumor circulate online. Um, I do think that's why Rand Paul came out decisively with this website called Never Nikki. And I was like, hey, great idea. <laughs> I tweeted about this in 2019. <laughs> you know? um, I think she's terrible. Um, my friend, Austin Roos, pro-life activist, he works with... Uh, a group called CFAM over at the United Nations. And he said that she could have done so many things, just lifted a little bit of a finger to help the pro-life cause when she was ambassador to the United Nations. And she didn't do anything, you know? And so what a disaster. All she cares about is, you know, pleasing the donors of Boeing. I don't find her attractive <laughs> in the least. And, and I have to give credit to uh, Vivek because he really came out firing against Nikki Haley. Like if it, his only contribution to this race was exposing just about how corrupt corrupt Nikki Haley is in terms of the things that she did after her time in the UN uh, and with defense contracting and her right. warmongering. It, it was right. good for the public consciousness to understand, hey, this is kind of George Bush, Bush in some heels that she said she used as a weapon. I mean, she had such a bizarre campaign and, and it just seems like she's being used now as like the liberal last hope that we can have someone that doesn't really care about social conservative issues that most of the country cares about that they just care right. about funding wars and well and if you look at the support that she got people who voted for a, a large chunk of the people who voted for it in iowa were people who were not are not going to vote for the republican nominee no matter what in November. Right. i'm not saying all of them okay but like look how well she did in iowa city and in ames where there are the iowa state and iowa university of iowa and iowa state university and she did very well. And they asked him, well, well, the only Republican I ever consider is Nikki Haley. That's why I'm out here. It's like, well, dude, you're going to vote for Biden in November anyway. So this doesn't even matter. And in New Hampshire, where you have a large pool of independent voters and there's no contest on the, in fact, Biden doesn't even have his name on the ballot because he wants New Hampshire to be after South Carolina. So that was the whole thing that did a reset of the primaries. And so he's not even on the ballot. So if you're a Democrat in New Hampshire and you want to stick it to Trump, you're going to come out and vote for Nikki Haley. So it's like, well, I mean, you're not even in our party. Why are you supporting this candidate? A lot of Republicans might be asking themselves. And that's going to not be the case when you start going to other states like South Carolina, Nevada, Michigan. It's like, yeah. you, know, uh, you know, so Nikki Haley, I think it's got, I mean, she may stay in even longer than DeSantis perhaps, but uh, honestly, you're talking like a 99% chance that Trump wins unless something happens like literally miracle lightning strike heart attack i mean this guy's got it wrapped up you win by 50 you win with 51 percent of the vote in iowa i mean this is did you mungus did you catch his uh victory speech no because i was watching msnbc obviously right 
You can't watch no, it. No, I'm just I mean, he was magnanimous. Can I can I show a text on it? Yeah, yeah go ahead. I, mean, I, I thought he was, was actually almost not un-Trump of him. Yeah. Well, I think that just speaks to how much he feels like he has this wrapped up. Is because now he's already messaging towards the. General. He doesn't even have to attack yeah, anyone. Yeah. This is great. These nicknames he had for his competitors. Talk about Tr Trump. Still has got the gas. If anyone was worried, check this out. He's destroying our country. And you know, my wife attended the funeral two months ago of Rosalind Carter, and it was beautiful. And Jimmy Carter was there, and I thought to myself, Jimmy Carter is happy now because he will go down as being a brilliant president by comparison to Joe Biden. <laughs> He'll be a brilliant president. It's gonna be, he's going to be known as brilliant by comparison. So we have to stop the invasion. Yeah, so he goes Trump with I the mean, burn. that was one of my favorite lines. That was great. That was just great. Trump yeah, with the burn. Carter's not the worst president anymore, right? Yeah, was, it, and that the other thing that you mentioned, and I think we'll, we might get to this later, but Joy Reid basically said, you know, we don't like to give a microphone to uh, dictators and authoritarians, uh, as it's maybe a little authoritarian to to mute someone from the public entirely. But they were saying that what he was going to talk about would be so dangerous, and he just ended up being very gracious, talking about unity, and then identifying maybe the three most important things uh, to voters right now: our borders wide open. And the Biden administration is not doing anything about it. He's like, as soon as I get in, we're closing it and we're deporting people, which is like, yep, sounds pretty reasonable to me. Good. Uh, the economy was another big one. Uh, and then uh, drilling. He's like, look, <laughs> we need to get our economy back going uh, through uh, not complying with a lot of these globalist Green New Deal, energy positive, whatever. It's like we have all of these things we could be doing right now in our country. So it, it does seem very general election politicking is what's going on i mean i almost i don't think he has much to worry about either so it's probably a smart political play so yeah, yeah take yeah. that for I think he's worth. ready he's ready for it he's he's already moved on in his head i think for sure yeah uh and then uh yeah let's let's go to that joy reclip now because there's there's yeah. because not only was this this the route i i think this might have been expected but i think the messaging that was put forth maybe was less expected for how they were talking about the people in iowa so I'm going to pull that up right now. I mean, expected to some. I don't want to speak for everybody. <laughs> um, all right. This is Joy Reid, MSNBC, uh, as the caucus is going on. But, you know, I feel like the, the important sort of data point and, and, you know, Steve talks about it a lot. He's, he's going to probably talk about it a little more tonight is that these, these are white Christians. That this is a state that is overrepresented overrepresented by white Christians that are going to participate in these tonight. caucuses, yes. especially tonight. Um, I today earlier today reached out to Robert Jones, Robbie Jones um, from the Public Religion Research Institute, knowing that we were going to talk about Iowa. And this is a hyper evangelical st white state. And he said the following to me. Iowa is about 61 percent white Christian. The country as a whole is approximately 41 percent white Christian. And in Iowa, we're talking about evangelical white Christians. And he said the following because i asked him even worse what do they get <laughs> trump because he keeps losing he keeps delivering losses and losses and losses and he said the following they see themselves as the rightful inheritors of this country and trump has promised to give it yeah. back to them all the things that we think about about electability <laughs> about, you know, 
None of that matters when you believe that God has given you this country, that it is yours, and that everyone who is not a white conservative uh. Christian is a fraudulent American, is a less, a less, a less. Oh man, unbelievable! It's amazing I mean, how much she hates people. It's really amazing. She like, hates not- them. Yeah. Yeah, and Doctor I, had a good point of like the other guy. He's like, they kept panning over to the other guys. Like, I just want to keep my job. I just want, I just to, want keep to keep my, my job. job. I'm white. I'm white. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was it was ironic. Well, and she went on too. She, how do we explain this tragedy that Nikki Haley did so poorly? She didn't even get second place. Well, it's because she's a brown woman and she has you know Indian heritage, no. and, and America's just not ready for for brown women. And I just, I mean, Joy well, Reid Republicans here, aren't. Yeah, that's what she yeah. would be right. She's completely, she's just a shill for, for Biden's talking points. It, it sounded like the speech that he gave at the Baptist church in, in North Carolina just a couple of weeks ago, where it's, what's the problem? How do we explain the fact that Donald Trump is still so dominant so many years later after we've just attacked him personally, we've attacked him in the courts. How is he still so dominant? Well, it must be these evangelical white Christians who think God has given them the country. And of course, her implication is we're going back to chains and slavery to borrow a line again from our president, Joe Biden. And again, like just listening to her rhetoric, it it was, I expected it, but it was still sobering. I mean, isn't it, it that's, that's openly, it's openly racist, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, pick out another group. She's like, these, these white evangelical Christians who feel like they have their inheritance of their own country. Yeah. How crazy <laughs> that I would actually think that I get to live in my own country. Like it's so exactly. stupid. How dare you? Like, you know what? I, I get the sense. I get the feeling that you elitists absolutely hate us and don't yeah. want us to feel welcome in our own country. Huh? And that you're at war with us and you want to take our guns and you want to like exterminate us. Gosh, you know? Yeah. Right. I, I, Thank you, Joy Reid, for confirming everything I want to say. But by the way, I want to point out this. This is interesting, though. Here's a little factoid. My my friend Ryan Gerdusky made this point on Tommy uh, Laren's Fearless podcast. Did you know that Donald Trump actually won the popular vote against Hillary Clinton in 2016? And you're like, wait a minute. No, she won it by like 3 or 4%. Among people who were born in the United States, Donald Trump won 49 to 45%. It was amongst people who were foreign born, and I'm not saying these are evil people, but I'm saying amongst people who are foreign born, Hillary Clinton won 71 to 29. So why is it that Democrats are so fervent about importing tens of millions of people into this country? Why is it that Democrats think Joe Biden is the best president they've had in 30, 40 years? Because he's bringing about a transformation of this country. He's bringing in tens of millions of new voters. Maybe they don't get to vote this first election. Maybe it takes them a couple of elections. But they're they're playing the long game. Teddy Kennedy passed the with Lyndon Johnson the night this Immigration Act in 1965. That because we had had we had allowed a lot of people into our country with immigration from the 1880s to like uh, up until about the 1920s. And then because so many came in, including my ancestors, some of my ancestors, I get it. Look, I'm not trying to. And then the the people at that time were like, maybe we need to tighten this up a little bit and let, let people assimilate a little bit. And we did that for about 45 years. And then the Democrats get complete control a- after the 
Kennedy gets assassinated. Johnson wins the landslide. And what do they do? Medicare, Medicaid. They start passing all these things. And they pass immigration reform in 1965, like one million new immigrants every year. Pretty soon things have changed and people are, and then it's this flood of illegal immigration. So a lot of voters are like going, I feel like I'm being replaced. And then they're like, oh, the, the white replacement theory, you guys are getting all fever pitch right wing theory. And then Joe Biden like admits it. Like that's exactly what we're doing. We're, we're well, replacing voters. And I think like, that's oh, what we thanks saw. Thanks for letting the cat out of the bag. Yeah, exactly. I think that that's what we saw last night was that the masks just all are coming off now. And I mean, Rachel Maddow, who was on that same panel with Joy Reid, she went in to, she's like, I don't mean to be all dark. And you say, but if we're worried about the rise of authoritarian in this country, which I am, it's just, I'm not worried about Trump doing it. We are worried about the potential rise of fascism. And she says, well, the leader is part of the equation, but she then she goes on to the people who elect him, meaning Trump supporters, that's the actual problem. It's half the people in this country are the problem. And she, again, like just, they were talking about, they've made the decision to censor Trump. They, they're not going to air his words because misinformation or whatever. They, they really hate half the country. And um, I think that was watching all the coverage last night was sort of the interesting part of the story for me because it was like, okay, masks are off. And I, I know love Coco, it Isn't it great? I do too. The I'm left like, worries about yeah, authoritarianism. Yeah. And they're the ones that are saying, President, hey, let's support President Biden's plan to force every employer in the country to make sure every employee right. has to get the vax shot. Exactly. But we're not authoritarians. Who's the authoritarian yeah. here? If, right. If I may, uh, and I have. Uh, Good tweet here from Martyr made that I think uh, this is so summarizes good, yeah. this well because I think the key is the people like Joy Reid and and maybe some people that live in elite circles or urban centers they 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 really do not get why Trump has appeal to people especially that are rural or low income or maybe not college educated and of course I think the solution to all of this is some empathy here right like trying to put your, yourself in the shoes of these people so maybe this is a good opportunity for those wondering like why does Trump have such fervent loyalty from so much of the country. And uh, this was in a response to this tweet by Beth Moore, basically saying the same thing. She was sobered last night, uh, <laughs> trying to practical, so practice worried. radical acceptance, uh, <laughs> not of a presidential candidate because supporting things happen, just plainly sobered by the thought that with other individuals to choose from, masses of people still hail Trump. And so Martyr Maid says this, people underestimate or are not in a position to understand how powerful it is for people to see Trump being attacked by the same people who have maligned them in media and politics for years. Critics can say that Trump is not a true enemy of the establishment since he did X, Y, or Z, but it's obvious to Trump supporters that the same powerful people who hate them also hate Trump and that they hate Trump for taking their side. Uh, I remember one middle-aged woman somewhere in Ohio being asked why she supported Trump. Was it his immigration policy, trade policy? What was it? She said, because he sticks up for us. So I want to point out it's it, it that's why we can't just be pure reason or pure emotion. Uh, there's a mix of both, obviously. And Josh has pointed pointed this out many times. It's not like a math equation that goes on in someone's head that all adds up to who they're going to vote for. There's an emotional connection that people need to feel with the person that they're going to vote for. And if you listen to Joy Reid, the way that she said white evangelicals, there was a true zing on that. It was like almost like she hated them. And so Not almost right. Yeah. I know legitimately yeah. like she hated him. Like and, and you say that about any other people. If I were to say talk that way about Koreans or Mexicans right. or blacks or black like, Muslims. Oh my gosh. Well, you know, right. And I were on MSNBC. What, what would happen? I mean, people would, would lose their marbles. 
Right. So right. It, it's it's important to understand, though, and I think he's earned a lot of this, is that he's finally taken the side of a people that had already received such open hatred for so long. And it's it's weird that they it's kind of codified by all the, you know, the, the truth and acceptance people as like thinking that they're being persecuted to Josh's point about being replaced or whatever is somehow a conspiracy theory or not true. This is the reality that a lot of people, especially as we saw in Iowa, feel is their reality as well. So, uh, well, and I guess how can we have constructive political arguments with these people if they do if they spit this much venom and hatred against white Christians? You know, like for example, I like this guy, Mike Davis. He's with uh, the the a conservative group that's focused on getting c- good conservatives elected to the judiciary. And uh, Article Three Project. I was blanking on it for a second, and he, his response to Joy Reid, because Mike Davis is from Iowa, and I understand his rationale here. He's like, "Listen, Iowa was a leader in civil rights. It's it was always a free state. The co- Supreme Court of Iowa protected out of state slaves in 1839. We desegregated our schools in 1868. We allowed black men men to vote that year. And so he's like, "Why are you calling Iowa? Why are you calling us a bunch of racists?" And it's like, Mike. You don't even have to defend yourself on this. Right. What you need to do is you need to turn it around and say, Joe, Joy Reed is a disgusting, anti-Christian, anti-white bigot. Like, that's what it is. <laughs> you, She's you started, just a bigot. <laughs> like, you started on the B word there, Josh. I don't know where you're going with that one. I mean, it's like, give me a break. I mean, it's like, <laughs> if she attacks me, you know, uh, white, oh, oh, white Catholics. Oh, actually, you know, you know. White Catholics, it's like, stop it. Like, well, the whole point is she's trying to make you talk in such a way where you sound like you're almost like defensive. It's like, why am I being defensive? Yeah. And then, like, there's, there is no universe in which you could go to Joy Reid and say, oh, I noticed that you accused us of being white evangelical Christian bigots. Here's the argument. Here are all the dates and the times in which we, you know, fought slavery and accepted blacks into our institution and blah, blah, blah. And she'd be like, oh, gosh, you know what? You're right. I take it back. That's not going to happen with her. And I, I know that we've talked okay. a lot about, you know, <laughs> do we do on this podcast, should we be, you know, less, Late, should we should we offer more argument? Should we offer it? Yes, and there's a place for argument and there's a place for educating, for for talking to people of goodwill. But what we recognized happening last night, what we recognized happening the night of the 2016 election, all throughout the 2020 campaign, is that there are people here, and it's important to recognize that they see us as an us them. That identity politics isn't something that we, that the conservative movement invented and something that these people have forced on the rest of the country. So Joy Reid is, she has already said, you are completely identified as an Iowan white evangelical Christian. You are the problem. Rachel Maddow says you are the source of fascism in this country and you are the threat to democracy. For them, they are so sold on identity politics that you are whatever your tribe is, that they there's, there is no dialogue. There is no history lesson we can give them. So the important thing for us to do is to identify in our circles, in, in our sphere of influence, because everyone has one. Everyone has a sphere of influence. Those who are still of goodwill and to be ready with the talking points for people who want to hear and who maybe are open to change and a better understanding of reality, but at the same time to recognize that we there is a point in the public discourse where you just say joy Reid is a bigot and that this right. is there is no dialogue there are some people who are just you know ambassadors of bad faith 
They just, mm -hmm. you can't reason with them. And it's just like, you need to move on. You need to focus on those people, as you say, you're, that you can actually persuade and have constructive dialogues with. But Joe Ray is not one of them. And MSNBC is a garbage network. Dot <laughs> 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 com. <laughs> oh, hey, one question that I had, Josh. Uh, so the DeSantis camp uh, and some other camps were frustrated that it was called so soon for Trump. And I, I remember having this experience, too, in 2020, where they were kind of calling certain states so early on and counting the votes. How could they say with such certainty that someone was going to win? How does that process work? Uh, like, how were they able to call it the first no, half hour? Actually, I mean, first of all, when Election Day comes and, you know, I'm a politico, I'm a junkie. I love getting all the stats and all that inf kind of information and, and the waiting and the waiting and the waiting and the waiting for the first results to start coming in. And you start seeing, OK, what what? What kind of where where the vote coming in? Who's winning? Where? And of course, uh, you know, Steve Deese put put together a funny little tweet during the during the day while we're all waiting at three in the afternoon and said Fox News has just called the Iowa caucuses for Nikki Haley. You know, it was obviously <laughs> a pretty funny That's joke. Awesome. It was meant to say that you know Fox News had jumped the gun and called Arizona way too early for Joe Biden, uh, and I thought that was dumb at the time. And the math actually bore that out, that that was a dumb call to make it too early. Um, you know, part of it is institutionally. Um, networks like to never like to make, you know, no one likes to admit they made a mistake. And Fox News was like, I always stick behind our call. But ultimately, um, you know, with this, I think people were frustrated because for two reasons, because in some ways, you know, the in the rural areas, there might, there might only be like 100 people in the room. And all the candidates uh, campaigns get like one minute. So the guy for DeSantis gets up and talks for a minute and then Trump. And then, you know, after about six, seven minutes, you're done. Everyone fills out a piece of paper, drops in the bucket and they just count it right in front of everybody. And it's like, okay, here's what Vivek got. Here's what Nikki got. And you know, you're done. And the result results start pouring in. And after about 40 minutes, the networks look at it and they think to themselves, OK, even if they're still voting in certain spots like Des Moines or Dubuque or something like that, where you might have a larger audience of people. You still know, like if Trump is winning by like 40 points in the rural districts, there's just no path forward. Like, I mean, of course, just because it would have been perhaps possible, like in a one in a trillion chance, but like in terms of statistics, you're thinking to yourself, if he's winning by 60 points over here and 45 points over here and 38 points over here, all over the place, it's like you can run the mathematical probability. It's like, okay, well, if in Des Moines, Ron DeSantis wins 100% of the voters, then I guess he's still got a chance. But it's like, what are the odds that he's going to get 100% of the vote out of this caucus of like 5,000 people? And so that's when they look at it and they say, we have a 95% certainty that Trump is going to win. So it's like, just tell people that they just release it. Now, one of the things, so like by math, you can know it is my point. The question is they should have still waited about 40, 40 minutes more to make the call just so that you don't suppress the vote. Because if you are in a group of like 150 people, let's say in West Des Moines, you're like, oh, well, Trump already won, whatever. And then you walk out. You know, and you're and then the guys who like Trump are like, yeah, and they stay because they want to be part of the victory. So th there is that point. It, it all comes back back basically to 1980. Uh, Jimmy Carter was was just getting trounced by Reagan and the networks called it because it was so obvious who was going to win. But they they called it literally before the West Coast was even done voting. 
and all the states were coming in. It was just a, a tidal wave for Reagan. And people in, in, in line in Oregon are like, oh, well, what's the point? And they just turned around and went back home. And that had a bad effect for Democrats because it suppressed the vote. Like people who are running for Congress, for Senate, for everything, they were like, oh, great. All these Democrats are going home. Thanks a lot. And so <laughs> it was understood then the networks, we don't want to do this. We don't want to call it too early. And of course, they conveniently forgot this in year 2000 when they called Florida for Gore and the Western Panhandle was still open because they're in the central time zone. See how that works, you know? Yeah, yeah. So are you saying, Josh, that maybe the early, the kind of rabbit out of the starting gate, rabbit out of the starting gate, secretariat out of the starting gate, uh, early reporting is a threat to democracy, as it were? Could I mean, be. I, I, you know, Could be. Whatever. I mean... <laughs> whatever I, I don't really consider it a threat to democracy or whatever but like <laughs> the fact is it was an awkward situation with the with the way the caucuses work and they should have waited a little bit longer because that was the, been the general rule that you well, don't again, wanna, if someone has phones you don't want to try yeah. to influence how people are going you want them to go in there vote and then when they get out then they look at what the results might be i know i just know. kind of felt like the decision to announce it so so early and i mean the ap announced it i think they said there had been 400 votes total cast when the ap announced it so it wasn't just fox news but it just seemed to me another example of the coastal elite these huge massive networks just not understanding how boots on the ground these elections work these caucuses work uh for america and just it's just 10 ear tone deaf you know what's really frustrating Super about that erica is that Tell me. i can no longer call you a coastal elite after you outed your <laughs> non-elite status on the east coast and that really makes me sad because i really revel in being able to make that joke and it's no longer possible or we can just pretend yeah. like you never said that and then Erica I feels like an honorary Midwesterner or something. Yeah, basically. You got to earn <laughs> my mom. My mom was born and raised. Here. My mom's born and raised outside Chicago, so I feel like I have it in my blood right, somewhere. Okay. But, right. but, you any, know, any uh, euchre oh, players? Like... Sound off in the chat. But then she went to an Ivy League, so uh, yeah. I'm just really confused over here. I'm really confused, guys. Help me out. Sound confused. Uh, Our our godly female podcast host. Seemingly godly. Seemingly godly. Yeah. Sometimes. Sometimes. Uh, okay, so I think we we got a lot of Twilight Zone content today. The election stuff was unsurprising, but interesting observations. So I have mine first, it looks like. And so mine actually is on the Biden administration taking action at the border. So if what? you were hoping that this is good action at the border, it's not. And it's just as shocking as I thought it would be. Uh, so the Biden administration, instead of sh helping shut down the border, uh, is warning it will take action against Texas. Uh, if it does not stop blocking federal agents from U.S. border area. Now, you might ask, why is Texas uh, blocking off areas from federal agents? Uh, it's because they are securing their own border, essentially. So uh, let's see. Because the feds aren't doing their job. <laughs> I mean, so honestly. U.S. southern border is commandeered by the National Guard soldiers last week, and they were calling the actions clearly unconstitutional. Uh, and then oh, they are literally I'm, pointing guns at waiting Texas for the Supreme Guard. Court to slap down the the Biden administration on this one. I mean, Joe Biden is basically criminally negligent for what he's doing on the southern border. Um, he should be impeached and convicted and removed from office. Um, and they have the audacity to, to get mad at Texas for doing the job that they're not doing. I mean, it's just brazen. But again. Yeah. It, does anything not shock you? It's just, no. Give me not a break. At this point. 
Yeah, I watched I watched another wild video too. Uh, this guy uh, Andrew Callahan, Channel Five News. He's like got a really interesting brand. He's the recent stuff he's done has been really fascinating to me. He's gone to San Francisco, uh, Philadelphia, and covered the homelessness there. But then he also just went down to the border, and he he really wanted to interview migrants. It was in Arizona mm-hmm. actually, and he went to the the major facility off the highway. Um, I forget where in Arizona. And the the agents were stopping him basically from being able to go anywhere but the uh, parking lot. And then he talked to someone in the parking lot who was like, oh, yeah, no, there's actually a secret facility off the highway, about a mile off the highway, where there's way more migrants. And it's basically open to anyone to talk to them. And he almost didn't really believe them at first. But sure enough, he went over a mile away. They just had uh, these migrants sitting in a big circle on the ground uh with where there's no fence or anything waiting for them to be processed for seeking asylum and uh he's gonna keep going on that but this is andrew callahan uh channel five news it's a youtube channel he's the guy from all gas no breaks if anyone's familiar with that uh this would be a very gen z uh journalist he's probably about my age uh he's hilarious he always finds people who can freestyle rap somehow uh when he does his reporting uncanny ability to find it um (laughs) But the the one that he did that was really fascinating to me. It makes me think more about the border. Gringo Pass, Arizona. Got Gringo it. Pass. So he went to Philadelphia and he went to uh, Kensington. It's a part in downtown Philadelphia that's basically an open air drug market. And so in this open air drug market, the latest drug there is something called they call a trank, and it's it's animal tranquilizer that people are injecting into themselves, and it's like the latest new addictive thing. And it's causing people to have to amputate themselves because if it gets to the central nervous system, uh, it'll kill them. Uh, and it basically kills the third layer of skin. So people are just walking around with open sores, uh, wheeling around in wheelchairs. I mean, it's it's really shocking stuff. I've never seen anything like it. I tried to eat lunch while watching this video. It didn't work. Uh, it was just really sad. But the one thing that he said that was crazy to me, crazy to me, was that the, how people are getting this trank is through Mexico. Mexican cartels are supplying the trank. Not only are they supplying the trank, if you don't buy from the Mexican cartel, they'll put out a hit on you in Philadelphia and someone from Philadelphia, they'll put some money on your head. Someone in Philadelphia will come and assassinate you. Uh, And so how it gets covered in the news is, oh, well, this is just, uh, you know, gang violence or homicide. It's just counted as a normal homicide. It's not. It's actually terrorism from Mexico, the Mexican cartel. And... China found a way to produce it cheaper in a different form. So now China is getting their product all back into this area in inner city Philadelphia. So what's happening is an international drug turf war in our own city. It's like, could you have possibly explained that to someone 40 years ago in Philadelphia or any major city? It's stunning. It's like how far we have come. And it's like, I go, it goes back to that Mark Morgan interview. And I talked to him. This is not, we know where the cartel is. We know their routes. Uh, this isn't like a local police solve the problem type thing. This to me is terrorism. Aren't these the people we should be drone striking? Like if anything, the federal government should be taking a more active role in preventing foreign countries, China and Mexico from killing people in our inner city. I mean, Trank is killing people right now in Philadelphia. Crazy yeah, video, actually, high discretion. High yeah, discretion lies if you check it out, but it's crazy. Video. And I, and I think Ron DeSantis is right when he said that we should treat these like coyotes as an international uh, gang, like terrorist uh, organization, and that we should use military um, assets 
to try to combat them. It's not just a law enforcement thing. It's not just like FBI and you know Department of Justice or whatever. But like the border problem, I mean, it's just massive. I mean, it remains open wound. It's this open border. And, and you know, like this guy going, I'll have to watch the video you're talking about, like a wow, crisis in, in the Arizona. I I remember when I was just a, a, a young boy, my mom and I took me to Arizona and went to see, you know, her aunt. And we went down to the border. And I remember just being shocked at just how it was back then this was you know 30 uh, for uh, almost 40 years ago and i remember we went we stopped by mcdonald's and it was just it was like startling you know to see hundreds of people waiting in line just to use the bathroom because it was a clean bathroom at mcdonald's and i just remember thinking at, at eight nine years old how like it just stunned me and i thought to myself these poor people my heart breaks for them and I thought to myself, why can't we do more to try to improve the, the conditions of their life in Mexico? Uh, and that's always been my my thoughts on this. My my great aunt was a Franciscan nun, and she would try to provide basic water and mm -hmm. food and shelter for immigrants who crossed the country uh, into the desert because she didn't want them to die. So we ha we as Catholics have a gen just a general compassion for uh, these migrants. We want them to 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 succeed, to prosper. We want what's best for them, but that doesn't mean we want to leave the border wide open because that's only going to invite exploitation by these coyotes. Uh, people are going to get used and abused and having, you know, we do have an understanding in, in Catholicism of solidarity and it's not good for uh, our country for solidarity to have 10, 11 million people pour into this country illegally. Mm. And to just, you know, we're starting to see it now in Chicago and in New York and some of these other cities who said, we welcome everybody. And so then it's like, okay, well, Texas and Florida's like, we're calling your bluff because honestly you signal how virtuous you are, how welcoming you are, but then you're not really paying the bills. You're not writing the checks. Well, here's your chance. You know, well, we'll bring them to you and you can, right. and then they start to realize, wait a minute now, we can't do this. We can't have an endless supply of charity. And then, then, you know, the temptation is to say, oh, what, do you hate people? Are you bigoted now? And so right. it's like and what were saying, well, I wanted to like just Erica. jump in there because I think you made a really interesting point, Josh, that does not get made enough in Catholic circles. And that is about the right of immigrants. And this is in the catechism, actually. And um, our, our colleague, Tim Heelskamp, former congressman, talks about this in his chapter in our upcoming uh, election year book. But he talks about in Catholic social teaching, yes, we have the right to migrate and to seek asylum, but human beings also have the right to remain in their homeland. And the United States, we have the resources. I mean, as far as governments go, we have we give more aid to countries, to people living in their native homeland than any other nation on earth ever has. And the fact that this has not been a bigger talking point that we're working with the Mexican government, we're working with the, oh no, I'm not working with the corrupt governments in like Nicaragua, but, but trying to improve the homeland of these people so they don't feel the need to to leave and to make this dangerous journey, which is the southern border of the United States. I just looked on the UN, it's rated the most dangerous migrant crossing in the world at this point because of the rate of deaths, the number of deaths yeah, every year. Man. And we don't realize that. And when we have these policies that are, you know, encouraging people to make that, to put, take their lives and their little children's lives into their own hands, um, that, right. that that's criminal. That is not Christian. And, you know, we should be holding these other countries 
accountable and trying to improve life for them in their homeland. Cause that's really, that would be great. That would be much better. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And if you, if you don't believe me, go look up Trank. I mean, this is a real problem. <laughs> like I almost didn't, couldn't yeah. believe it until I saw it. It is wild. Uh, Erica, you're a twilight zone. Well, actually, All right. my, my oh, here we go. Dovet oh. dovetails with this because All right, we saw the U.S. bishops. All right. So allow me to. Well, is that okay Please. if I go? Go for I'll it. Allow it. I mean, I'm not trying to be rude to Erica. I love you. <laughs> no, but the last. U.S. bishops put out their report saying the, the top areas of religious liberty concerns, you know, and. First of all, I'm, I'll let you take one slice of this, which I think you might want to. So I'm not going to I'm not going to step mm -hmm. on that. But what the bishops expresses one of their concerns is that uh, organizations that um, that they're writing this document to talk about like the threats to religious liberty, and they are once again using this as an opportunity to scold Catholics who believe, I think, in what I would call normal order and you know, law and order on the border, making sure we're not just having an open border that just pour, people pour in because that's not good for anyone. I keep saying it, not good for the migrants, not good for the United States and stop calling us selfish and bigoted if we don't like this. This is not a good environment. And so they, but again, I, I love our bishops, but man, again, we're getting the scolding from these guys. Not, I'm not saying me or my organization in particular being named or called out, although or not oh. named. We'll get to that in a second. Oh. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> you know, we're, we're talking here about basic needs, sometimes food, sometimes shelter, clothing, and other kinds of assistance. The church has always done this, and it's part of our Christian responsibilities. That's what Bishop Rhodes said in this report. Like, that's fine. No one's against this. This has universal support. Provide this to these people. I think that's a great idea. Does that mean our border should be wide open? And the bishops say, oh, no, but we have the solution. So stop attacking us. We have the solution. It's comprehensive immigration reform, which means basically a path to citizenship amnesty to the 20 million people who are here illegally. And you know what? Maybe the American people are like, you know something? We were told that in 1986 we would have comprehensive reform and that we, this amnesty would be like just a one-time deal and then we'll get it under control and we'll make sure that people, these businesses aren't hiring illegal immigrants and we'll fix it once and for all. And that didn't last. And so here we are again. And so that's why I think it's prudent for people to say, no, actually secure the border first. Once that's secure and we don't have tens of thousands of people coming across the border every week, then maybe we can talk about whether or not there'll be a path to citizenship. But, you know, don't try to sell me on that before you can prove to me you've got the border fixed. Well, and not only that, but let's get a handle on who is here, right? We're talking, it's not just women and children who are fleeing religious persecution. It, they're the minority of who is here. And Tom's talked about the Trank thing today and that the, this is a, a engineered cartel. We have 24,000 Chinese military age males who came in last year. Like this is not, we need to get a handle. And we don't know. We don't know. We know we have 180 countries from around the world have come over the Texas border, the New Mexico border, Arizona, but we don't know exactly how many. We don't know how many gotaways. We don't know where they are now. So like, let's get a handle on who's actually here, who deserves a path to citizenship, et cetera. But like you said, Josh, this has been the line for 30, 40 years now and no end in sight. So 
it's hard to hard to take it too seriously. Yeah, and this reporter wrote that article, by the way, for our Sunday visitor, Kate Scanlon. She basically, oh, she didn't basically. She said that the the replacement theory was advanced by white supremacists, and it's a racist theory. It's like, so are you calling Joe Biden racist? Because he loves it. He believes in the great replacement theory. He thinks it's great. It's going to lead his party to victory after victory in the future. So, again, interesting. Thanks, thanks, Kate. Who's wearing a tinfoil hat now, Mercer? <laughs> you. We we might send little memes to Tom over Slack in the uh, virtual office here of tinfoil hats once in a while. So yeah, Pogo's always. I happy would like to, to say though, someone else the hat. <laughs> What's up, great replacement? Says the Oracle was, was firing on all cylinders, dude. You were. You continued, were. continued to put on a show. My boss was awesome. like, I don't know. I think Vivek gets in the top three. I said, dude, non-factor. <laughs> I was right. Yeah. I said the real question today will be whether or not Trump gets over 50. And I was right. Mm-hmm. Bam. Right. Is, is it, That's is it why hard? we all keep logging in, Josh. Yeah, I'm not saying I'm a football right. oracle. So obviously the Lions, you guys. Okay, Clearly not. But like, okay. Clearly not. And, and you know, congratulations for Tampa Bay. They're going to lose in the next round. So uh, congrats on that win over Philly. But the road, all roads roll through Detroit. Uh, Erica, as promised, best for last, your twad zone. Yeah, I'm going to take us in a totally different direction here. I was a little dark on it yesterday, so I decided to do a movie review for you all. I watched, and now that I'm pregnant and I'm like in bed by 6 p.m. every night just lying there, I was like, oh, I'll watch this Netflix movie. And we've got, are you going to pull it up or do I just Oh, yeah, I'm pulling it up. Oh, there it is. Okay, yeah, Society of the Snow, Spanish language, working on my Spanish because, you know, replacement. And uh, this is the story (laughs) of (laughs) Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571. It crashed in the Andes in uh, 1972. So this is about a decade before I came to be in the world. And there were 45 people aboard. Yeah, okay. 29 died, 16. Yeah, so this is, there have been other other films, but this just came out on Netflix. And um, it was, it was really one of the most Catholic movies, I think, that has been produced in the last year or so. And it came from Netflix because, uh, you know, spoiler alert, many of the passengers die on initial impact. This is not a kid movie. Um, no, and the survivors, no no. no, 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 no. This is like, yeah, this is a band of brothers level. Uh, yeah. So this was where the interesting thing came. The way that the filmmakers treated the cannibalism that happened in order for them to survive uh, was it, it was respectful. It was, didn't back away from the, you know, some of the passengers chose not to eat the other, the deceased members' right. bodies. Others chose to. And the way that the filmmaker worked with it, it, it was it was fascinating. And they the elements of the importance of their Catholic faith to some of these rugby, there was a team of rugby players. Most of the survivors right. were these young men, athletic young men in their early 20s, late teens. Um, and two of them end up hiking over the Andes into Chile and they find help finally and get it back. I mean, it's not a spoiler because everyone, you know, you can just look this up, but <laughs> cool, it is yeah. so worth it it is worth it if you can handle like so i would say if you can watch saving private ryan you can watch this movie i mean uh, that's about the level respectfully if the loop cast is on an airplane we go down josh i'm eating it first <laughs> thanks pogo I well, none of the, yeah yeah so it, it was it was great though and there was you know there was prayer there was it, i'll it pray was, first look it I'll was say great grace. 
Yeah. Well, thank well, Josh, God. I'm sorry. Like I need there's to a little scripture, I like there's scripture mixed I, in. I keep your life but, for like a month. <laughs> but yeah. The treatment of the body. When we talk so much about all this confusion with the gender ideology and like, are we our bodies and we could change you guys, you're not even listening, was, but it was sorry, This is like the most, I'd recommend ever. Erica's going into like the, the theology of the body and on how yeah. to do good cannibalism. And Josh and I are joking <laughs> about eating each other on the podcast. <laughs> Yep. Oh my God. Total. I take it. Society of the snow, society of the snow. I would recommend it again, not for family viewing, but very Catholic movie, very Catholic themes. Check it out. Okay. Rug rugby's chill too. They tried to get rugby me to play cool. in college, but I didn't. Do we actually have a rugby player on the, on the podcast today? You do it's not me and it's yep. not Josh. I believe. No, Erica. I was, I was a rugby player. I was a hooker actually. <laughs> But we won't need. We don't need to uh, elaborate. What 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 position the hook? In a godly way. Experience. Yeah, bite yeah. my yeah. <laughs> yeah. No rugby. So I I did my study abroad in England, and I was at uh, Keble College, which is one of the colleges at Oxford University. We're we're and back on like, the East Coast elitist. We're back. But yeah. Now I am totally one hundred percent East Coast elite because I played rugby at Oxford. And it, was, <laughs> it was a great experience, you know. Wait, what? Test uh, the body. Test the mind. What position is the hooker? Not the hooker is right in the middle of the scrum. It's like the little person right in the middle of the of the scrum. And you're trying to like Tom get just in wanted and, to say that word one more time. Maybe, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, you're just trying to get in and get the ball and like scoop it back to the. You're homies, trying right? to push the other team back so that the ball is behind your team and you your player your runners can pick it up. Ah. So just just right in the middle there. A lot of screaming. A lot of screaming in girl rugby. Oh my gosh. Heck yeah. Yeah, it didn't last yeah. very long for me, but it, it's nice to be but able you, to say it. You can say you played, and I, and Josh, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't believe you ever played rugby. Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, I'm not against it, but I mean, yeah, it's cool. he would have been a formidable opponent. If see, here's Big the thing. I mean, I grew up. Yeah, I grew up playing baseball and I played a little bit of football, uh, and then of course the suburban moms just said, "Let's do soccer," which I think is an abomination. And, you know, if we wanted to import a foreign sport, why couldn't it have been rugby? That would have been great. That would have been totally within our, you know, Anglo heritage. But uh, no, no, not a fan. Not a fan <laughs> of soccer. Just makes mm. and the reason why people riot in the stands in a soccer game, because the action on the field is so terrifyingly boring. Right, Josh, I'm going to cut you off. It, it more soccer. Yeah. We're going to uh, we're going to lose subscribers over this. Yeah. So <laughs> If I may, sorry, I, I haven't really taken the Mitch. I don't want to. Mitchell hear it, agrees with I, you. <laughs> I play soccer. I very much enjoy it. Uh, but sorry, I want to take take this opportunity. I don't do this often, but there's there's two things that I sincerely am asking for uh, prayers for. So uh, I'm, as I've mentioned, from the Metro Detroit area. There is a a family, a very young family, uh, that recently uh, got impacted. Uh, I've seen it kind of shared across, but I actually knew them personally and just two of the most wonderful people have six kids. Um, they died in a car accident. Uh, someone actually stole a truck and uh, hit them basically in the middle of the night. The mom and the driving. dad. Yeah. yeah, the mom and this dad. This is the mom and the dad. So please, please keep uh, Ryan and Jen uh, and their family in your prayers. Pray for the repose of their souls. Uh, they're both wonderful people. I, I really, I, I wouldn't doubt, you know, they're going to end up in, in the right place. So if you can even ask for them to intercede for you. Uh, pray for their family, for the six kids. Uh, it's going to be a tough road for them, but, um, you know, I really just trust in God's divine providence and I know that the people around them do as well. So, uh, please, please, please pray for them if you can. 
uh, another request. I, I just got a notification. Uh, someone that really deeply impacted my life as well. His name is Dr. Michael Sagru. If any, anyone's ever met him before, he was my uh, Western civilization professor in college. He just uh, recently passed away from cancer. Uh, actually, I just got a notification uh, during this recording. Uh, he was, I took him freshman year and I took him for both semesters. I've never seen anyone capable of telling me the entire string uh, from beginning to end of Western civilization the way that he did. I think he probably was close to genius level IQ. A very eccentric guy uh, would just rip off his shirt at the end of the day, sprint to his car and go fishing. Uh, one of the smartest men I've, I've met around. Uh, his his um, uh, Dr. Shauna Sagru I had as well, his wife at one point. Uh, she was phenomenal and, and, and pray for, for both of them, pray for the repose of his soul. He really impacted my life quite a bit. And if anyone else knows him as well, kind of knows what I'm talking about. So two prayer requests, if you can, for the Loopcast. Hopefully use the power of this platform uh, to add to that. Um, other than that, we got the March for Life coming up here on Thursday. Uh, safe travels to anyone rolling. Friday. DC. Oh, it's Friday. on Friday. Yeah. 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 People are traveling on Thursday. It's on Friday. Though. Let me just March. edit this out and post. Um, it's not like we're doing this live or anything. Uh, so pray for people traveling the March for Life. Pray for the success of it. Uh, pray that we can change some hardened hearts and it can just be a joyful experience for everyone there. Um, it's, a, it's a cause near and dear to all of us. We've been many times. So uh, look out for, we're going to drop an interview I did again with Jean Marie Davis. It's coming up. She uh, was a phenomenal interview. It's going to be a great lead up to the March for Life. And I hope everyone enjoys that experience. Uh, we are going to be going into a little bit of hiding, doing some planning. We got big things coming up in 2024. Uh, so pray for that success. If you would like as well, pray for the success of the program, pray for us. We're not perfect, uh, but we, we try our best to put together a good show for you guys. Uh, yeah, I think I'm going to close it at that. Uh, Our Lady Guadalupe, uh, St. Thomas More, St. Fidelis, pray for us, and we will see you guys later. Peace.